Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg, and I'm your host on Yoga Birth Babies. And today, we're going to talk about racial disparity and the effects of breastfeeding and infant mortality. And to do that, we have the esteemed, accomplished author and health psychologist and international board-certified lactation consultant, Dr. Kathleen Kendall-Tackett. Let me tell you a little bit about Kathy. Dr. Kathleen Kendall-Tackett is a health psychologist and international board-certified lactation consultant and the owner and editor-in-chief of Proclaris Press, a small press specializing in women's health. Dr. Kendall-Tackett specializes in women's health research, including breastfeeding, depression, trauma, and health psychology, and has won many awards for her work, including the 2017 Presence Award for Outstanding Service to the Field of Trauma Psychology from the American Psychological Association's Division of Trauma Psychology. Dr. Kendall-Tackett has authored more than 420 articles and chapters and authored or edited over 35 books. Hi, Kathy. Thank you so much for your time. Well, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I went through your website like a crazy person and read so much. You have a lot of work on there. And, um, and I also watched that video that you had. And this is such deep, interesting, and important information. So I guess let's just dive into what brought you to this work. Uh, well, part of it is because I do a lot of work looking at the stress response. And so I read a lot of literature in this field called psychoneuroimmunology. And I started actually seeing this effect uh, of discrimination. And, you know, like we could actually trace the physiological effects, you know, because you can very clearly see ethnic group differences in things like um, obesity rates or hypertension or heart disease, diabetes, you know, and all of those kind of have an inflammatory base. Uh, And what was kind of interesting is to map on these studies on, you know, the physical effects of racial discrimination and how that kind of tied in with some of these diseases. And so it's kind of like the more people feel like they're being discriminated against, the the higher their inflammation response. And then you could actually put that together with the studies that show these big disparities. Uh, So I started actually talking to one of my friends, um, uh, Sherry Payne in Kansas City, 
And she said, gosh, you know, you really ought to put this stuff together uh, and do a talk for us about it. And so that was kind of how I really kind of started being more formal in how I looked at this. Uh, and so, again, like I said, I really I really felt you could actually sit there and map some of these um, major health disparities by what happens physiologically on an everyday basis. You know, when people feel like they're being discriminated against, what happens to them physically and, you know, and how does that kind of impact, you know, their overall health? Yeah, it seems like it's a cycle that it's, it's like, how do we stop that cycle? You know, the stress and then the inflammation, and then that leads to more problems, but yet then there's more stress and inflammation. It just seems like yeah. we need to find a way to, to stop that. So how would you describe the current racial disparity in terms specifically today, we're going to look at um, women's health, infant mortality. Um, what's going on right now? Well, there's there's a number of different things. I mean, first of all, you know, although the infant mortality rate disparity has improved, uh, it's still more than twice as high for uh, African-American babies versus white babies. Uh, you know, so we're looking at like 12.4 per thousand compared to 5.8 per thousand for white. Uh, you know, so it used to be 13.8. So it's actually it has improved, but it's still very high. You know, and that's very concerning. And one of the factors that's actually specifically related to that is the high rate of prematurity. And you actually even see this with middle class black women uh, that are in the United States. Now, women who have immigrated from Africa, you don't see that at least for a generation. And then you start seeing the effects. You know, so it does tell you that there's something kind of going on in the culture here that's kind of causing that. Uh, and we know that there's an inflammation base to that. You know, so again, like I said, you can kind of track these effects um, specifically, you know, from what happens kind of on an, on a daily basis to then what happens in the, um, you know, uh, in terms of these long-term health effects, including prematurity and prematurity world health organization identified as the number one cause of infant mortality worldwide. Right. So can you talk a little bit about the inflammation aspect? Cause that was something okay. that I hadn't really thought of. So I read your article, trauma, inflammation, racial, ethnic health disparities. And it was really interesting because I don't think people <clears throat> think as inflammation, um, as such a big problem. Can you talk about the base of it and what the effect is on the body? Well, the scary thing about it is, is, you know, inflammation is the piece that actually kind of explains a lot of these sort of underlying mechanisms. So when you talk about something like the impact of depression on heart disease, you know, we've known for a long time that depression increases the risk of heart disease, but they never knew the mechanism. Well, the mechanism is that in depression, you have high levels of uh, inflammatory molecules in the plasma, and those actually damage vasculature. You know, so the more inflammation you have, you know, because it's part of the stress response. So when that stress response is a three-part response gets activated, part of that stress response is the inflammatory response system. And chronic stress, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, and now we're realizing the effects of, um, you know, ongoing discrimination all of those we know increases that inflammatory response. And that actually specifically is harmful to health. And so it causes things like, you know, uh, high rates of diabetes and heart disease and um, obesity. It's there's just there's so many diseases we know actually have an inflammatory base. And now we're looking at a lot of the neurodegenerative diseases like MS and Alzheimer's, you know, people who have kind of high rates of inflammation that go on kind of our chronic time, you know, are... Um, at higher risk for disease pretty much across the board. So how does that relate necessarily to preterm labor? Can you explain that? 
Yeah, that's the kind of interesting thing. It's like we were actually working on a book back in 2010 called The Psychoneuroimmunology of Chronic Disease. And, you know, hey, ladies, it's not too late to order that for your Amazon <laughs> wish list. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a, it turned out to be a very technical book for us. Uh, but I remember actually, you know, I thought it was a really important book because it's just like it was – a lot of the studies were just coming out, looking at things like the effect of kind of hostility, like a hostility as a worldview and how that impacts health. Uh, by the way, same mechanism. It raises that inflammatory response. But I remember actually saying to one of my collaborators, I said, you know, I'll bet you anything, we are going to see that preterm birth has an inflammatory base. And he said, well, gosh, why do you think that? And I said, well, because if you think about the populations who have a hot, high rate of heart disease and diabetes and metabolic syndrome. Um, you're also going to see that the same group that has a, a lot of preterm birth. Well, sure enough, um, I ran across an article uh, that was actually specifically looking at stress and depress uh, depression in uh, new mothers, um, finding that they had high levels of uh, two pro-inflammatory molecules called IL-6 and TNF-alpha. And, you know, that's not a surprise. We've, you know, we see that, you know, high levels of stress and depression. We've seen that actually since 1998. So that's when the first study came out. Um, so we've pretty consistently seen that. But one of the things they mentioned in this article that really caught my eye is they said one of the other functions of IL-6 and TNF-alpha is to, rough, to uh, ripen the cervix. So hmm. it's kind of like all of a sudden we have a mechanism. If you have a lot of inflammation in your system, it's going to actually ripen your cervix and lead to preterm birth. So what can be done to help with the inflammation well, that's very interesting that you asked. Um, yes, there's actually several things that help. Um, one thing is I would definitely recommend that pregnant women just in general, make sure you're not deficient in DHA, which is an omega-3 fatty acid. Uh, right now, the current recommended milligrams for that are 200 milligrams. Um, I would actually recommend going even a little bit higher hmm. because in countries where people eat a lot of fish, uh, you actually see that, you know, the amount that they get from their diet is between 800 and 1,000 milligrams. So we know that tends to be a safe amount. And I, you know, especially if populations at risk, I would definitely recommend doing that. In a couple of different studies where people have been supplemented, uh, it increased the length of the gestation. So it's an anti-inflammatory, you know, so it slows down that inflammation process. So that would be one thing. We've also found that people who are deficient in vitamin D, it seems to exacerbate the effects. So again, those two things I would definitely make sure you're not deficient in, DHA and vitamin D, you know, and a lot of pregnant women are deficient. Uh, we've also found that social support actually lowers that inflammation response. So women who have a lot of social support have less inflammation. Mm. So, you know, it's really kind of interesting. There was a premature baby study in Los Angeles. They looked at kind of a population base. And they found that even women with moderate to high stress levels, which we'd expect, you know, would have higher preterm birth, if they had good social support, it cut their risk of preterm birth in half. That's huge. It's huge. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, so social support, I mean, talk about a low tech option, you know, and you, you know, your audience is, you know, interested in things like yoga and mindfulness. We mm -hmm. also know that helps. Yeah. That's specifically because what you're looking at is what kinds of things can turn off that stress response. You know, so the more channels you can kind of hit that on, I think the better. So, you know, definitely supplementation, social support, and some kind of practice where you're turning off the stress response. Mindfulness we know is good. Yoga we know is good. Uh, so all those things actually are really helpful. 
I'm glad to hear you say that. I was wondering if yoga was, you know, I believe, and I've seen many studies saying yoga does help with this stress response. And for many people, they think, oh, I can't get to a class, but there's so many options just to, you can do it online. It does take the social aspect away, um, you know, because a yoga class, you really can't connect, but at least people can carve out time on their own and and breathe and relax and try to connect inward and try to release some of that stress. Right. And also too, I mean, just exercise in itself is actually very helpful, mm-hmm. you know, so even if they can't do yoga, can they go take a walk? Can they do something like that? And social support can come from other places too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Friends and good care providers and yeah. absolutely. So as one thing is also interested in reading is that you talk a lot about the role of trauma in the health of mother and baby. And I thought it was so interesting, the mm-hmm. impact on breastfeeding and the sleep pattern that kind of yeah. blew my mind. Cause when I was first reading it, where you said that breastfeeding moms have better sleep in your trial than the non, I thought, well, that doesn't, when I was breastfeeding, I felt like I was con- constantly up. So can you, well, yeah. <laughs> so can well, you talk about that? Is, yeah. One of the things that's kind of key to, to understanding those findings is you, you have to differentiate exclusive breastfeeding from partial breastfeeding. You know, where you get the physiological effect is exclusive. There does seem to be something very different about that. Now, that, I have to admit, surprised me. When we found that in our data, I actually was surprised by that. But we've actually seen some other studies since then that have sort of uh, confirmed our findings. And we had 6,400 moms in our study. So, I mean, I think we had a pretty good pretty good shot at that. And we had a lot of those moms who had experienced adverse childhood experiences. You know, I'm actually looking at that data right now. And I would say probably at least half experienced at least one type of adversity in childhood. Well, that's what I noticed because then when you went on about how people that suffered trauma had less sleep and then I thought, oh, okay, now I get it because the breastfeeding releases oxytocin. So they're already getting less sleep because the the background and the trauma that they've experienced, but the breastfeeding can help counter that. Is that, that's how I interpreted it. Is that correct? That's that, I would think that would be a pretty accurate interpretation of it. It really, what we kind of uh, described it as is especially when we looked at our population of, of sexual assault survivors, you know, we had almost a thousand women who indicated that they had been raped, you know, so that's pretty intense mm-hmm. level of trauma. And, you know, a, a lot of previous kind of papers about this have been pretty negative. You know, they said, oh, well, you know, these aren't women who are going to want to breastfeed. And, you know, honestly, I mean, I end up actually talking to a lot of these women because they come up and I meet them at conferences. They find me online. Uh, and I can tell you this, you know, I think we should not put our expectations on women. You know, it's like, we got to go where, where a woman wants to, if she wants to, if she wants to breastfeed, I don't think we should discourage her. And I think sometimes people are, and they say, Oh, they're making less oxytocin and they're doing all this stuff. We found that the, the exclusive breastfeeding rate was exactly the same between the sexual assault survivors and the women who had not been sexually assaulted. Exactly the same. I mean, it was, it was kind of startling actually. Mm-hmm. Um, So a lot of people consider that kind of counterintuitive. And so what we were able to kind of really determine is, first of all, sexual assault did have a pervasive negative effect, you know, pretty much across the board. Mm -hmm. It affected every variable. You know, the the sleep was worse, the depressive symptoms were higher, more anxiety. I mean, exactly what you'd expect. When we put the feeding data in there at the same time and looked at sort of the effect of that, what we found is, you know, the women who had a history of sexual assault were definitely still affected. But what it seemed to do is actually dial down the trauma symptoms, you know, so they were still there, but they were substantially less. And the one that was particularly striking was the level of anger and irritability. Hmm. You know, that was pretty much eliminated. And I, I mean, it does make sense. I mean, it's like, you've got something that's basically turning off that hyperactive stress response. 
You know, so you're getting a short-term lessening of the stress response over and over and over and over again. And so what we found was that, um, you know, it basically was dialing it down. And it's like when I, when I saw, I had to actually see it on a graph before I kind of understood what the numbers were showing me. Uh, and once I saw it on the graph, I just about fell out of my chair because I couldn't believe it, actually. It's what we would hope to find, but we actually did find it. Uh, and so, yeah, it was it was pretty striking. And so this is what I think actually what we can say from this, if we're going to sort of, you know, create a sort of story around what I think these findings mean. I think what it is, is it's, it's like nature's sort of built-in mechanism to give women who've experienced, you know, kind of a crappy childhood to kind of have a do-over. It's like their parenting starts with this generation. So you don't keep getting these sort of carryover effects from all the stuff that happened in the past. It's a way to kind of like have in some ways a fresh start, you know. But what we did find is, it again, it comes back to exclusive breastfeeding. I was I was actually expecting that we would see sort of a dose response effect, that we would see that the um, – you know, the more you breastfed, the better the effect. We didn't actually find that. What we found was more like a threshold effect. Mm-hmm. It's like it took a certain amount to get that physiological effect. And again, that was kind of one of the things that was unexpected that we found. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. Well, does what happens when they stop breastfeeding? Do they does the what happens when they stop? Breastfeeding? Yeah, what is the does the trauma the experience and inflammation and trauma heighten again, or does the does the breastfeeding effect that they did it for however long help eliminate some of that and help the relationship between the mother and the baby? Well, I, you know, we don't actually have long-term data on this, but I'll, I'll tell you what I think mm-hmm. about that. <laughs> that sounds good. Uh, what I suspect, what I suspect we'd find is we do know that if women long-term breastfeed, like go up to 12 months, 12 months seems to be kind of a critical time. And that's kind of the current recommendation But if they can breastfeed for that 12 months, they seem to have lifetime protection against things like heart disease and hypertension and high triglycerides, you know, all the things that are like the number one killers of women. You know, so nice big study actually, you know, looked at women whose the mean age in the study was 63. Okay, so I think we can pretty much safely assume that most of those women hadn't lactated for a while. (laughs) And yet they still had this unbelievable lifetime protection. So I would suspect you would see the same thing with trauma survivors. And there may still be kind of a heightened tendency to some of these, you know, inflammation-based diseases, but I think actually it does confer a certain amount of protection. And I think in terms of the relationship with a child, I think what happens is if you can establish it in that first year, I think it carries on, you know, because what we're really looking for is that kind of secure attachment. And that happens with responsive parenting. Mm -hmm. Now you can be a responsive parent without breastfeeding. Absolutely. In fact, most of the research actually has been on parents who were not breastfeeding. But I think breastfeeding kind of helps because you have to you have to be responsive in order to really successfully breastfeed. So it's kind of built in, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think that there's some helps for that. You know, again, responsive parenting is is probably the key things in terms of establishing that secure attachment. 
You know, breastfeeding is one vehicle and one way to get there. And I think you kind of have hormonal support for helping to establish that, but you can do it other ways. You know, and I think that's important for moms who are not breastfeeding to know, because again, most of the research, you know, kind of, you know, it was done in an era where the majority of women were not breastfeeding. And a lot of developmental psychologists never thought that was an important variable to look at. So, <laughs> no, that's um, interesting. Do you have any information yeah. about different communities and cultures that are more likely to breastfeed? than others? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's actually a lot of research on that. Um, You know, and, you know, like when you look at sort of immigrant populations, a lot of times they are more likely to breastfeed um, than women who are raised in the United States. Oh, interesting. Why do you think that? Because they're bringing their traditions from their own country, you know, but the sad thing is what happens is sometimes they get here and even though they had breastfed previous infants, they get to the United States and feel like now they need to bottle feed because that's the way you do it here. And it's like, oh, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Do you know the current rates? I mean, I feel like I live in a little bit of a bubble in New York City because I feel like I, yeah. I, I do see a lot of breastfeeding. What is What are the rates currently in the U.S. for breastfeeding? Do you happen to know that? Yeah. Um, the current rate um, for like breastfeeding initiation is coming up on 80%, which is really good. And in some places, it's even higher. Um, but where we start kind of having some melt off is we have a lot of melt off in that, like being able to sustain it outside the hospital. And so by the time I think you hit six months, you're probably talking 30% or still exclusively breastfeeding. Okay. That's, that's a drop. That's a massive drop. Oh, it's a big drop. It's a big drop. And what happens is we, we lose a lot of mothers in that first couple of weeks, you know, and it's not hard to actually figure out why. Cause if you go on social media and you listen to what mothers are saying, mothers are saying, Oh my God, I had to stop. It hurt so much. And that to me, I think is more a problem of lack of support. You know, it's like, I think, you know, this is, I've been writing editorials about this for like years, you know, every time, every time one of these, you know, big Facebook campaigns comes along and I'm kind of like, you know, what this is saying is that mothers are not getting good and consistent support out in the community. Mm-hmm. You know, we shouldn't have mothers who are experiencing weeks of pain. You know, if you've got some pain, it means something's going on. You know, sometimes moms think, well, that means I'm doing it wrong. No, not necessarily. It could be any number of factors. It could be something going on in the baby's mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be, you know, that there's an infection. I mean, there's lots of other things going on. But, you know, to have somebody competently look at that. And I think sometimes, too, we have to have practitioners who have the attitude that pain means something is wrong. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like when Tina Smiley says, if you've got a rock in your shoe, you don't sit there and figure out how to keep walking with the rock. You stop and take it out. Yeah. <laughs> You know? And so it's kind of like I said, you know, I, I still run into this, you know, and people will say, oh, yeah, I experienced excruciating pain for the first month, but you just have to tough it through. And it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> because, again, you want to talk about inflammation response? What's going right. to happen? I mean, yeah, pain? absolutely. Because if you associate, okay, I'm going to breastfeed and now it's going to hurt, you're not going to want to breastfeed and it's going to make that stress response. So you're going to lose well, all the juicy benefits, I'm guessing. The pain is going to cause the stress response. Yeah. You know, and then that's going to make you at very high risk for depression. You know, so it's kind of like, guys, if you can't look at this as a physical health issue, look at this as a mental health issue. This is not a good idea. We also, in your research, talked about um, African women, African American women having a higher rate of post-traumatic stress symptoms following yeah. birth. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, actually, you know, that first showed up in the Listening to Mothers Two survey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I was very struck by that, actually, because, you know, they were saying, I mean, first of all, the rates for the whole sample were high. Full criteria PTSD were 9 percent. 
another 18% had symptoms of post-traumatic stress. I mean, that's higher than it was in lower Manhattan after September 11th. Okay. Those are, those are those staggering are big numbers, numbers. Yeah. Those are big numbers. They don't sound that big, but they're big. Um, but then, um, they, you know, there was kind of a little footnote and it said that the, the African-American mothers in that sample, 26% of them reported higher post-traumatic stress symptoms. You know, so I've been intrigued by that ever since I read that, you know, and I remember actually, you know, again, I, you know, I always discuss these things with my friend, Sherry Payne, and she, she runs a, a birth clinic in, uh, in Kansas city, you know, and so it's called, um, and I'm blocking on its name right now. It's horrible. I can actually see it. Uh, Ustaz, Usazi village. There we go. I knew it. You know, it's like, I could actually <laughs> picture it in my mind because I've been there. Um, but it's, um, Anyway, she, you know, she has actually argued that a lot of the way that black women get treated in the hospital has to do with, you know, their higher levels of post-traumatic stress symptoms. Um, but we have a book we just published. It's called Battling Over Birth, and it's uh, it's a study of uh, maternal mortality in California. Uh, and that, you know, using California birth statistics, they found that a black mother is four times more likely to die during labor than a white mother. And what are some of the factors? Well... Part of it was the way that these women are treated in the hospital. So what they did is they did a kind of a qualitative and quantitative study of it. And the mothers were just talking about, you know, this basically the very hostile environment they often encountered in the hospital. You know, assumptions made about them. You know, if you're black, you must be poor. If you're black, you must not have a husband. You know, um, just feeling like they were not welcome there. Uh, and, you know, so again, and some of it has to do with some of the policies in place. You know, I had two black labor and delivery nurses in Fort Worth talk to me at a conference one time and they were, they had just, this had just happened the week before they said, you know, a black mother came in middle-class black mother and she was immediately tested for drugs. Uh, a white mother came in at 25 weeks gestation in labor and nobody bothered testing her for drugs until the next day. And of course, then they found out she had, you know, massive levels of cocaine. I'm shocked about that. As a doula, uh I had been to many births and none of my clients were ever tested for drugs. That seems very presumptuous and 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 derogatory. Well, and I, that, that's kind of definitely the way these, these nurses took it. Uh, you know, and so again, like I said, you know, I think honestly, some of these things that we don't even, they're, they're sort of unconscious. I don't think people are actively trying to discriminate, but I think there's a lot of assumptions being made. You know, and it's kind of like what you find out when you talk to to black women in terms of breastfeeding. You know, oftentimes they're not even offered breastfeeding support in the hospital. You know, and I had I actually had the master's level educated nurse director of a big NICU tell me that when she was a new mother, nobody ever talked to her about breastfeeding in the hospital. So what what is in place to help encourage and educate and support the black community for breastfeeding if the hospital and care provider is not even doing that? Well, you know, that was kind of what was interesting about this book. And as I said, you know, if you're interested in the subject, I really actually would recommend this book. It's called yes. Battling Over Birth. Uh-huh. Um, and it's it's really, it's an it's just an outstanding look at this kind of uh, community. But one thing is, you know, like within the black community, they're trying to sort of um, sort of grow uh doula support and midwife care, uh, within that community, you know, and one of the things that was interesting is that came out in the study is the perception that having a doula or having a midwife or having a home birth, that that's what white women do. <laughs> and they were trying to say, no, 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 no. This has been our tradition and our culture as well, you know? And so there was a lot of kind of education going on, but there was that perception, 
um, that I thought was actually very interesting to just, you know, hear these mothers sort of explicitly say that. But, you know, that's one way that um, different organizations are trying to kind of counter some of these effects is making sure that when women do go into those settings, that they have good support. Yeah, I saw on some of your research, you had um, a few of the organizations that were set up. Um, I think one was called Rose. Um, was there another one? Oh, yeah, Rose is awesome. There was another one with an interesting name. Was it Meow or Mew or Mio, something like that. Um, I think it was, oh, let me look at my notes. Oh, here it is. More Excellent Way Health Improvement Organization. Yep, Mew. That's excellent. Okay. Yes. okay, good. So I'm glad there's things set up, but it's... I'm a little taken back at the assumptions um, being made. I mean, the, I'm really taken back about the, the drug testing when someone comes into labor. That just doesn't seem well. Right. And and not testing somebody who comes in at 25 weeks. I mean, it's like, okay, what's going on here? But because she's white, nobody bothered testing her for the, you know 24 hours. You know, and so again, like I said, you know, and and I said this had literally happened the week before when they when they talked to me. I actually ran into them at a conference, and they they were telling me the story. You know, and I'm just kind of like. Wow. Okay. You know, and I I really do think some of it is, you know, there are some structures, you know, we talk about some, you know, like structural, structural racism, Mm -hmm. you know, when um, uh, different authors have talked to me about, well, you know, is it okay if I mention that? And I said, well, you know, honestly, I hear enough of these stories that I have to believe it exists. I do believe it exists, you know, and I don't think it's because people are trying to be mean. I think it's because they just make assumptions, Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe previous experiences kind of taught them some of this, but it's kind of like, I think it's not quite fair then to turn around and apply it to everybody coming in, you know? So, you know, we probably have to have some conversations about this, but, you know, I want in a, in a productive way, kind of like, what can we do to change this? Well, what are some of your thoughts? That's where, that's actually the question I was going to ask next, because a lot of the data is showing that, um, the African-American community is having post more post-traumatic stress symptoms, post-traumatic births, there are higher inflammation, there's less support for breastfeeding. I mean, we're going on and on and on. So where and how can change happen? Well, a couple things. I mean, one of the things from a structural standpoint that we do know makes a difference is having a baby-friendly hospital. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what that means? Yeah. Well, you know, the Baby Friendly Hospitals initiative that was started um, back in, I think, 1990 uh, by the you know World Health Organization and UNICEF, you know, and United States has been slower to adopt that. But basically, there's sort of 10 steps that they sort of envisioned as being something that would make a hospital when they say baby friendly, you know, but also friendly to breastfeeding. You know, like, for example, that we'd stop giving away free formula Mm -hmm. that we would, you know, require that hospitals purchase this, you know, as something because, you know, what happens is like if you give something to a medical provider, you know, it influences them, you know. And so what the Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative has said, look, hospitals, you know, you can still have formula, just buy it, buy it like you do any other medical supply. Mm hmm. You know, don't let them do your continuing education. You know, don't put out materials that are produced by formula companies, you know, because oftentimes if you read it, there's some fairly insidious messages in there where they kind of talk to, you know, um, you know, they give a mother's information uh, that sort of plants seeds of doubt. Oh, yeah. I, I, do you know the book? The I think it's called The Big Letdown. Um, yes. Yes. I, so I read In that. Fact, I interview- I've got it sitting right here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yes, you do know. I interviewed the the author of that, and I read it, and I was really shocked and taken back oh, yeah. about. You're right. The insidious ways things just kind of slipped in there, and the it's it's really cutting one's confidence that they have the ability to breastfeed when it's almost well, being told like, know, why bother? 
this is actually something that's kind of going on even outside of the breastfeeding world, you know, that we're really taking a look at the impact of, say, pharmaceutical companies and their marketing, you know, and it's like a lot of healthcare um, systems have actually now completely banned, you know, that pharmaceutical companies cannot come in and do free lunch and free education and, you know, give send doctors on trips. And Yeah, I didn't know that was happening. I was like, really? Oh, yeah, that's been happening. That, you know, now not every place. It's not every place, but it's like there's a lot of centers where you absolutely cannot have that. You know, like when you go to, say, Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center in New Hampshire, um, you can't have anything. You can't even have a pen with <laughs> a company good. name. I, you know, I like that. It's really, I think it's, I think they're seeing this sort of system wide. But the other thing is, you know, that you have a written policy on breastfeeding, that you have the staff is educated. You know, these are all considered part of the quote 10 steps, you know, and so there's different things that hospitals have to do. And, you know, U.S. hospitals, only just a handful of them uh, were certified as being baby friendly until the Surgeon General made this a priority. And now all of a sudden I'm seeing baby-friendly hospitals popping up all over the place in the United States. Now they've been in other countries for a long time, but here, and so it just, we do know that when they put in these policies, because what happens is that every mother gets talked to, you know, there's everybody, everybody gets information in the hospital about breastfeeding, you know, uh, you know, and so then again, you have a policy. So people are not picking and choosing. Oh, she's Hispanic. She's going to want to supplement. Oh, she's African-American. She's not going to want to breastfeed. You know, everybody is at least given access to the same information. And what we find is suddenly those gaps in breastfeeding rates disappear. Mm, that's good. But what about yeah. for helping with the post-traumatic stress after and the depression? Well, I think that that is actually probably the next big thing we need to look at in research because we have almost no studies looking at depression in African-Americans, you know, and part of it is because, you know, the, the women who have been in studies traditionally uh, have been more like middle class women who come and they seek mental health care. You know, and again, that's a good place to start. We have to start there, you know, but now we're recognizing that this is a much bigger problem, you know, and you've got whole populations that do not trust the mental health system. You know, and so they will never sort of darken the door of like a mental health care provider. You know, unfortunately, uh, it's just that those systems are completely shut up. And one of the things I've kind of have argued is we need to be thinking about what we can do on the community level, you know, because the traditional identified depression and refer just doesn't have any relevance in populations who traditionally don't trust those systems and won't go. You know, so we got to be thinking about it. So again, this is what I'd say. Let's think preventatively. Let's think about DHA and vitamin D because we know for one thing that those help reverse some of the physiological effects of things like post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, let's start talking about PTSD and maybe we can do it in a context that actually makes sense in those cultures. You know, one of the most brilliant health psychology studies I ever, ever saw, it was, it was about actually educating heart disease, you know, people about heart disease and diabetes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it was it was aimed at the African-American community. And so you know where they went? They did it through the hairdressers. Okay. I mean, it's, it's that makes sense. It, that's a, it's a community gathering spot. That makes and it's complete such a, sense. There's such a culture around hair. Yeah. You know, and so they educated the hairdressers. You know, so it's like this is something I've kind of Meet argued. Meet people where the they are. Absolutely. Exactly. It's kind of like let's let's think a little outside the box here in terms of what we can do. You know, because oftentimes what happens is it's a friend or somebody who says, you know, or it's a doula or it's a midwife who says, you know, I think you might have post-traumatic stress disorder. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, but the good the, I think even stepping back to what you were saying with the studies about heart disease, if we can even try to combat some of this before even they're pregnant. So if they're carrying a lot yeah. of this trauma, we know this yeah. community is more traumatized in that sense, try to help them before they're pregnant so they don't have that stress and inflammation affecting them. And and I believe if please correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't it affect the baby, the stress? During oh, pregnancy? Yeah, potentially. And, you know, what's really interesting is you can see these intergenerational effects. You know, I, I, I have a talk I do about obesity. And actually, you know, I get in trouble with that talk on a regular basis because my, my basic message is leave the fat girls alone because, you know, they, they put all these negative expectations on them and it just drives me crazy. Uh, but one of the things, as I say, look, there's a lot of stuff going on here. People have this idea that it's just diet and exercise, diet and exercise. That's what they always talk about, but they're not looking at things like the impact of trauma, Mm -hmm. trauma, trauma, trauma actually physiologically primes people to pick up weight. Okay. And that's actually something you need to understand. It's like, if you've got somebody sitting in front of you, you do not know where they have been and what they have been through in their life. Right. And if you come at them with this diet and exercise crap without knowing all the other stuff, you know, you're not going to reach them. Absolutely. You will not. Yeah, we're actually yeah. starting something at my studio. Um, we're doing a trauma-informed prenatal and postnatal okay. workshop so that Excellent. we do have some of that awareness and language. Um, Perfect. So that we understand that, and especially when we look at the population of how much has, how many people do already have trauma before stepping in our door, that we can't absolutely. assume everyone's, you know, in this happy land. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. We need to try to help the foundation before you know, the next steps of pregnancy and then birth and then the effects on the baby. Absolutely. Well, and what you kind of see are these kind of intergenerational effects too. And so that, you know, oftentimes with populations, especially where there's been like a history of cultural trauma, Mm -hmm. you know, you see, you know, what happens is like when a mother is exposed to adversity during a pregnancy, her baby is as an adult has three times the level of inflammation. Yeah, so I remember then, that video about the adversity during childhood, and it it really made me think. They like, okay, you know, and you went through like divorce, and when a parent dies, and I mean, right? It was yeah, it was very impactful. Well, and you know, think about like you know, one of the things I kind of argue is like if you look at like obesity rates, if you look at them here, and if you look at them in the UK, I, I think you actually see a very very clear legacy of slavery. Mm-hmm. You know. Traditionally, that you know, the people who are the heaviest, we see, you know, African American or Black Caribbean, Black African in the UK as having the highest rates, you know. And I think honestly, you could make an argument that there's a generational effect there, you know. And what's interesting in the UK is they actually separate out the Irish from other whites. Explain. Which, you know, hmm? can you explain that more? <laughs> No, actually, I can't explain oh, that. But okay. <laughs> I have to admit I was absolutely, you know, baffled by that. But, you know, um, you know, obviously there's a huge history there. Yeah. And what's interesting, and this is what I think is kind of like in some ways useful about the fact that they do that, is you see the same effects in the Irish. 
that you do in, you know, like the Indians and the, the black African, black Caribbean, you know, they, they have the same intergenerational effects. That's interesting. Yeah. I remember yeah. reading in some of your stuff also about the infant mortality was body mass index was a, was a factor. Well, you know, some people have sort of argued that. Um, I think it's partly because women who have higher BMIs tend to actually have more interventionist births, much more interventionist births. Oh, okay. And it's like, and I think that part of it is just roaring prejudiced because when those women have home births, they don't seem to have higher rates of C-sections. But especially if you're looking at women who have a BMI over 40, their rate of C-section goes up to like 60%. We already know that C-section is not the gold standard for everyone. So, And, and you know what? C-section probably, if you're going to talk about an intervention that's probably not helpful for somebody who's got a higher BMI, a C-section would be one. It's like that would be a woman. But, you know, like in Australia, for example, if you have a BMI over 30 as a new mom or as a pregnant woman, you are automatically shunted into the high-risk healthcare system. You cannot have a midwife attended birth. You can, I mean, it's, you know, so it's not just here where we're seeing this. And that's going to affect also maybe their confidence in themselves. If all of a sudden they're like, oh, you're high risk. We're not sure if you can do this. Your body's broken. Yeah, Yeah, that's going to affect their ability to birth. That honestly conflates with some of the racial things that you see. Mm -hmm. Because you know that, you know, that, you know, ethnic minority women oftentimes are heavier. And so it's like, you know, how much of the what they experience in the healthcare setting is due to their ethnicity and how much of it is due to their size. We don't yeah, know. I know this is, this is a lot. <laughs> and I know we have to start wrapping things yeah. up because you had another call, but so I want to just kind of touch base on the research you've done. Have you said that we have seen a slight improvement, um, in the infant mortality rate for African American yes. babies? Are you seeing anything else that's changing and what do you think might help create this change? Well, one of the things that the CDC credited with making that change was um, the, the the grassroots organizations within the African-American community that are getting more mothers breastfeeding. That's great. I mean, it's phenomenal, you know, because I think that that's actually where, where the change has to come. You know, I think when we try to kind of get in and say, oh, here, these are the things you need to do, those, those kinds of things don't tend to work very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these community organizations that are, you know, being dramatically effective, uh, I think that 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 is something that is really, really exciting. You know, that change was, you know, CDC heralded that as a huge change. And I agree. I think it really is. I mean, I, you know, like you mentioned Rose in a more excellent way. Also, there's there's the Black Mothers Breastfeeding Coalition. There's Chocolate Milk. You know, there's a lot of different organizations that are actually being very, very effective, you know, and it's exciting. It really is. I mean, it's like, it, it shows you that we actually can be making some changes and moving in the right direction. I think from a structural standpoint, you know, more baby friendly hospitals are going to be helpful, but also more conversations, you know, about some of these risk factors that mothers have, Mm -hmm. you know, like post-traumatic stress disorder, like depression, you know, uh, like the lack of support, you know, having, you know, more options and stuff for mothers. Also, I said, I really do think, you know, like these moms that are especially at high risk, let's make sure that, you know, we get them supplemented on DHA and vitamin D because we know that both of those actually have a huge physiological impact. This is great information. Is there anything that I haven't asked that you want to touch upon on this subject matter? Well, I think I would probably just leave you with one thing is that, you know, when you think about the physiology of breastfeeding, 
you know, and how it changes things, that when you can get a group of moms increasing their breastfeeding rate, it, it, it becomes almost like a political act. You know, it, it takes back a sovereignty. You know, Cammie Goldheimer talks about this with American Indian populations. She said it becomes like a food sovereignty issue, you know, that reclaiming breastfeeding. Uh, and you see that it makes huge changes. You know, a lot of times people think, oh, yeah, it's just breastfeeding, it's just feeding. You know, they don't really recognize from the physiology of how it impacts the mother. But it really is a chance to buffer that mother and that baby from any adversity that they're experiencing, you know, and get that mother and baby off to a good start. And it's like, boy, if we can establish, if they can establish that secure attachment, we know that that has lifetime implications. You know, so it really becomes in many ways a political act, Mm -hmm. you know, about changing communities, sort of one mother and baby at a time, you know, and that to me is, I think, the real power of this. That's that's a fantastic place to end. Is there any um, place that people can find you and your work and what you're up to? Um, Well, I I would recommend that you check out our uh, Preclaris Press uh, website. That's where we sell a lot of these great books and resources. We have a lot of free webinars. We've got podcasts. uh, but also uh, take a look at um, our our blog, Women's Health Today. Uh, so we we regularly post a lot of information on that. And if you're particularly interested in the issue of the, some of these ethnic differences, uh, a couple of books that we have that I'd recommend is uh, Battling Over Birth. And then we have another one called Free to Breastfeed, Voices of Black Mothers. Uh, and then we have another one called Advancing uh, Breastfeeding, and it's all about equity and social justice. Uh, so that would actually, those would be resources if you're interested in more on this topic. Uh, also, too, like if you go on my Kathleen Kendall Tackett site, you'll see some of the articles I've written on this. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I'll make sure that we have the links to all of those. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing this and and just opening people's eyes that maybe didn't realize there's such uh, disparity. Yeah, it you know it it's kind of amazing, but I think it's good that we're having conversations about it because I think we can't change it until we first admit that it's there. Absolutely, yeah. Ignorance is not bliss. Well, thank- no, not in this case. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Enjoy your afternoon. Thank you very much. Right, bye. Bye. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.